Well, uh, thank you for joining us today. We're continuing in our series through Genesis. And today's text is one of the most important texts in all of scripture as we take an in-depth look at the covenant promise that God made with his son, Abraham. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to our passage today, Genesis 15. Uh, Genesis chapter 15. And we'll be reading verses 1 to 18 together. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 18. May God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Amen. The word of the Lord. Well, covenant isn't a word we use very often in our everyday language. It feels somewhat archaic and formal, doesn't it? Uh, We wouldn't agree to to meet someone up for dinner and say, it's a covenant. Uh, They would think you're a weirdo and probably second guess their dinner plans. Dinner with someone isn't a covenant, it's, it's a date or it, it's a meeting. Nor would we make plans with a business parter, partner and draft up a covenant for the business deal. No, we would need lawyers to draft up a contract for that deal. So it's true, we, we don't use covenant in business. We don't use the word covenant in our friendship language, but there is a time when we hear the word covenant and that's at a wedding. And I believe that's appropriate because only the language of covenants can capture the essence of our most important and our most intimate human relationship. We don't go into a marriage thinking we're just going to date them or just spend time with our spouse for the rest of our lives. No, that's too casual. 
It's too casual just to say, I, I want to date you for the rest of my life, right? Um, we need something more binding than that. And at the same time, we don't go into a marriage with a contract mentality focused on the terms of agreement regarding money, sex, and lifestyle. Imagine that, imagine if right after a proposal, a husband presents a notarized contract with a promise to make X amount of money till the age of 65 in return for three kids, plenty of time for golf, home-cooked meals five nights a week. Right? That marriage is going nowhere fast. Right? We don't see marriage as a contract. And, and that's why, I'm not saying prenuptials are wrong, but I'm saying um, that's why so many people have a natural aversion to prenup agreements because it reduces a covenant relationship, the covenant of marriage to, into a contract. That's why so many people like, I would never sign a prenup, right? Because they see marriage as a covenant not marriage as a contract. But if you have a prenup, it's all good. No judging, right? I'm just saying that's why a lot of people struggle with it. And that's the nature of a covenant, right? More intimate, more personal than a contract, but more binding and powerful than mere friendship, more binding and powerful than even just a loving relationship. And when the Bible talks about our relationship with God, it always talks about that relationship in terms of a covenant because there's nothing else that captures the full scope of our relationship to God. O. Palmer Robertson defines covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. I like that. A bond in blood sovereignly administered. And that's a great theological definition because it reminds us that it comes from God first, right? That our covenant with God originates from heaven. It comes first from him and second, that it comes at a price. It's not just words. It's not just emotion. It's not just intention. That price is the bloodshed work of Jesus Christ. In our message today, we're going to answer three important questions regarding the covenant of God. And the first is this. Why do we need a covenant? Right? Why do we need it? Second, how do we get it? How do we receive this covenant of God? And finally, what is the power of the covenant of God? So why do we need it, how to get it, and the power of it? In the first verse, we are told that God comes to Abram in a vision, and he says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Okay? Uh, you see a lot of fear nots all over Scripture, and whenever you see one, you, you should ask why. Right? Why is this angel telling this person to fear not? Why does God say, fear not? Well, why does God tell Abram not to fear? Well, first of all, in, in chapter 14, we, we didn't preach on chapter 14. We skipped over it. Uh, but it's, it's, it's kind of exciting. There's a battle scene. We're told that Abram led a rescue mission to save his nephew Lot. Lot had settled down by Sodom and Gomorrah, and he settled with five kings in that land. Well, there was a battle between the four kings of the, in Canaan and these five kings in Canaan. Well, Lot and his group, they lost. They lost. So Lot was taken captive. Lot was kept, taken captive. And when Abram heard about this, he gathered his fighting men and he led a rescue mission, uh, uh, battling and defeating a lot of these kings. And he rescued Lot. But, you know, just like, you know, in, in any genu uh, regular fight that we might pick with somebody who is a king, oversees a lot of different people and has a band of, you know, four total kings, Abram was worried. 
He was worried that these kings might retaliate. He was worried that these kings in revenge would come after him and destroy his family. And so he had fear and God says, fear not. To give Abram peace, God promises him that he is your shield. God promises Abram that he would be his protection, that he would be his guardian. Well, there's another reason why I believe that God told Abram, fear not. And it's because he knows what's in Abram's heart. You see, the great promise that God made to Abram was when he was 75 years old in Genesis 12, God promised Abram seed, offspring. And this was huge because Abram and Sarai, his wife, they had no children. And in that day, to be childless was a sign of possibly being cursed. To, to be childless was to have an empty household. And so Abram and Sarah's heart, they were empty and they were afraid. Well, God promises Abram at age 75, you will have a child. And Abram was excited and he believed in God and he hoped in him. And guess how much time has passed between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15? 10 years. At least 10 years have passed. Could you and I wait for God 10 years to make good on a promise. Abram's 85 years old. He's like, I'm not getting any younger. I'm not getting any more fertile. My wife's not getting any more fertile. God, are you going to come through on your promise? There was fear and uncertainty in Abram's heart. And so knowing this, God again comes to him and says, fear not, your reward shall be very great. Your reward shall be very great. And then we have this beautiful scene to connect Abram's heart with his eyes and his ears. God tells him, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. Imagine that. God is speaking to Abram, declaring promises to him, wanting to, 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 to build up conviction and assurance and trust in his heart. And he just lines that all up with his eyes and says, look to the stars. This is my promise to you, Abram. You see, Abram needed the covenant of God because he had fear, fear for his earthly circumstances, fear that God wasn't going to come through on a promise, or even worse, fear that God had forgotten him. John Calvin, reflecting on this verse, he makes the following conclusion. For whoever shall be fully persuaded that his life is protected by the hand of God and that he can never be miserable while God is gracious to him and who consequently resorts to this haven in all his cares and troubles will find the best remedy for all evils. Think about that. I love that quote because Calvin's not saying that we're never gonna have trouble. Calvin's not saying we're never gonna have difficulty or experience evil. He's saying for all of us who find our refuge, our shield, our reward and our strength in God, we have a remedy for all of our evils. You see church, this is why you and I, we need the covenant of God in our lives. We need God to come to us and remind us that he is our God. We need to be reminded that we are his people, that we are his sons and daughters because we, like Abram, we live in fear. How many of you are afraid to go back to work on Monday? Maybe there's a lot of stress. Maybe your job's on the line, right? Maybe you have a crazy project and a deadline due and you just, 
if you could, you just stretch out the hours and the minutes and the seconds of each day just so that Monday didn't come around. I'm sure the college students are dreading Monday as they have to go back to school and finals is just around the corner. How many of you have fear of this semester or quarter ending? Perhaps you're failing a class. Perhaps you're on academic probation. Brothers and sisters, the fear is real. Maybe we're afraid that we're gonna lose people we love. Maybe out of relationship brokenness and dysfunction. Maybe due to sickness and pain. We're afraid that our lives aren't gonna turn out the way we've hoped. Perhaps you've hit that quarter life crisis. Perhaps you're hitting that midlife crisis and there's fear. There's fear that your life is not turning out the way that you had kind of designed it to be. Parents are afraid that their children aren't going to turn out to be brilliant, athletic, musical, and popular, right? Parents have so much fear and anxiety. And we are all afraid at times that God has forgotten us. We're afraid that that we've done something to upset him, done something that he might turn his face away from us, done something that we might have disqualified blessings in our lives because of our sin and our rebellion. But God is reminding us today that he's not just a shield for Abram. He's a shield for all of us. He's reminding us today that he doesn't just have a great reward for Abram. He has a reward for all of us. In 2 Samuel twenty-two thirty-one, the scripture says this, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for who? All, all those who take refuge for him. Church, today, did you come needing a shield? Did you come needing a guardian? Did you come needing protection? God wants to offer himself to you if you would just take refuge in him. We need a covenant God. We need the covenant of God to come to us and remind us that he is our God and we are his people. How do we receive this then? Second point, how do we receive the covenant of God? And the answer is actually simple. It's in Genesis 15, verse six. And it's one of the most important verses in all of scripture. And it reads, and Abram, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. What was it that Abram believed? And the word believed here is actually best translated trust. It's not just kind of like mental agreement and, and you just kind of agree with a fact and idea. No, it's, it's, it's trust with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your cognitive faculties. I'm going to trust in God. Derek Kidner says that Abram's trust was both personal and propositional. His faith was personal in that Abram was trusting in the Lord. It's not just trusting that someone promises to have your back, not just trusting that someone's going to be your shield. It's, it's knowing who, who is going to defend you, who is going to provide for you, who is going to reward you. And it is Yahweh, right? It's Jehovah God. It is the Lord. Abram was trusting in the Lord. God who is almighty, God who alone was trustworthy and dependable. And his faith was propositional in that he was trusting in the promises that God was making to him, that God would be his shield, that God would give him the great reward of offspring, even 
at the overly ripe age of 85, he believed in the proposition that God said, no, Eliezer of Damascus, your servant is not gonna be your heir. I'm going to give you a natural heir. I'm going to give you a son. Abram had to agree with that. He had to look at his wrinkly, withered, 85-year-old body, look at his beautiful but old wife and say, God promised us a son. Do we believe? And against the odds, against his flesh, he believed. He believed in God and God credited it to him as righteousness. My old pastor used to always ask us whether it was a greater compliment to love someone or trust someone. Think about that. Is it, is it better for someone to say, I love you? Or would you rather them say, I trust you? Yes, I, someone said it, right? The answer is trust. The answer is trust. Because we can love a fool, but we should never trust a fool, okay? Parents will always love their children, right? I believe that. I see that in our family's ministry. But when I talk to them, they will not always trust their children. When the cookies are missing or when one of the siblings is crying and they have a big welt on their forehead and your kid has an unbelievable poker face, you don't trust your child, right? When the report card mysteriously disappears, you don't trust your child. I, I, I kid you not, I confess, my parents still don't know this to this date. I remember I was in third grade. I got a B on a report card, which in hindsight is pretty good, but I was so scared of my parents. I grabbed it from the mailbox, took my little bike down the street, threw it in the sewer, and I said it got lost, right? My parents trust, they shouldn't have trusted me, right? right. Every, parents know, every parent knows their kids are lovable little liars, when they need to get out of trouble. You see, when you trust someone, you're saying a lot about who they are. When you trust someone, you're saying that they are reliable, that they are dependable. And when we place our trust in God, church, when you place your trust in God, you are making much of him. It is a greater thing and a greater honor and a glory to God to say, God, I trust you. I put my faith in you. I put my family's faith in you. Then simply say, God, I love you. Because we can love God and not trust him with our finances, can't we? We can love God and not trust him with our families and our decisions and our futures. We make much of him when we trust him, when we declare that he, not us, is our strength and our shield. Charles Spurgeon once said, it is possible for even a good man to fail one who trusts him, but it is quite impossible for God to fail the soul that has relied on him. Amen. Church, do you believe that? It's impossible for God to fail you. He is trustworthy. He is dependable. The apostle Paul, he considered Genesis 15, 6, the foundation of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so in Romans 4, he makes the argument that the righteousness of God is credited to us, or to use a theological term, imputed to us by faith, not by works. Now, righteousness simply means uprightness, justice, perfection. It is everything that God is, and unfortunately, everything that we aren't, because we've all fallen short because of our sin. In Romans 4, 2 to 5, Paul makes this argument. Let's read this together. Or just read this with me. You don't have to say it out loud. 
For if Abram was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Church, this point, the second point was how do we receive the covenant of God? This is how. We receive it through the person and promise of God through believing and putting our trust in Jesus Christ. We receive it not by works, but by faith. Because if we received God's grace by works, then grace would no longer be grace. We would earn God's favor, just like a worker earns his wages, guys. If there are any of you that have an hourly job, you make a certain amount of money for every hour you work. And if we take our works into the throne room of God, And we say, God, I have done this. I've accomplished this. I did five out of seven quiet times this week. I deserve a blessing. Then grace is no longer grace. But we receive the covenant of God, not by works, but by faith. Grace is a gift. And God credits his righteousness to the unrighteous by faith alone and grace alone. God, through the gospel, makes us what we are not in our unrighteousness, in our fallenness, by giving us what he is, Jesus Christ, who is perfect, who is righteous, who is blameless. Now, after Abram believes in God, there's one more exchange between God and Abram. God tells Abram in verse seven that he will give him land to possess. And Abram asks God, oh Lord God, how am I to know I shall possess it? Abram's in the land of Canaan and he's afraid. He's afraid that these kings are gonna come after him. And God says, Abram, this land that you're in, this land that you see, it will be yours. And Abram says, God, how am I gonna know? Because right now I'm living in a tent. Right now I'm a nomad. Right now I feel like I'm on the run. How am I going to know that I shall possess it? In essence, Abram is asking for assurance. He's asking for a sign of this promise. And this leads us to our final point today where God answers Abram's question with a covenant ceremony. God shows Abram how powerful, how mighty his covenant is, how sure his word is. In the second half of chapter 15, God commands Abram to gather five animals, a heifer, right? A goat, a ram, and two birds. And this seems really gory because he, he charges them to split them in half, the larger ones, and then lay them alongside one another, making two rows. That seems odd, really gory. But to Abram and those in the ancient Near East, this was common. This was common when a treaty was being made between a king and a servant, This was very common when a treat was being made between a king and a servant. Animals would be cut, rows would be formed. And then when an agreement has been made, the servant, the servant would walk through the two rows of animal carcasses and declare his allegiance to the king, okay? So if it's an oath that I will work for you for the rest of my life, right? Or I will fight for you, or I will obey you as long as I live in your land, that's what he would do. There's the animal carcasses and he would walk walk through it and declare his allegiance to the king. The king never walked through the rows, but the servant did because that's all the servant has to offer. Does that make sense? 
servant's like, I have nothing. You're more powerful than me. You're richer than me. You have greater title than me. All I can offer you is my life. And so I will walk through these animals. And by walking through the rows, the servant was acting out the curse of the covenant if he should break it. He was effectively saying that if I break my oath to you, O king, may I be cut in pieces like these animals. Does that make sense? That's what this treaty was all about, okay? If I break my promise, if I break my covenant, my oath to you, O king, make me just like this heifer that's been cut in half, right? Very serious treaty, right? A lot more than just a notary and a signature, right? And uh, a thumbprint. There's a lot more going on there. Now, I'm sure Abram knew what was going on. And I believe, and I'm sure Abram was expecting to walk through the rows of animals because that's what the servants always did. He expected to swear his allegiance to, to God. But as we keep reading our passage, something completely unexpected occurs. Abram falls into a deep sleep and a dreadful darkness falls upon him. And in verse 17, we see what happens next. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Church, this was totally unexpected. This was entirely extraordinary because Abram the servant didn't go through the pieces swearing an oath of allegiance. God the king did. God took the form of a flaming torch and he passed through these rows of animal carcasses. Tim Keller, reflecting on this passage, says this. It meant that God was making the promise for both of them. And he was taking the curse of the covenant for both of them. Not only is God saying, I will be torn to pieces if I don't keep my covenant, but also I will be torn to pieces if you don't. Think about that. That is commitment. That is love. That is covenant grace. Here we see the power of the covenant. It is God covenanting himself to us. It is the promise of God to us. And it shows us the utter and complete commitment that God has for us. Church, do you believe that? Do you believe that God is utterly committed to you, to save you? to offer you forgiveness of sins, to make you his son and his daughter. Do you know and understand how passionate he is about that endeavor to covenant himself to you? Turn with me to Luke 23. In the beginning of verse 44, this is what Luke writes. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light faded and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. You see at church, at Calvary, another dreadful darkness fell upon the earth again, just as it did before Abram. And this was because God's people had failed to keep the covenant. This was because God's people were nailing the son of God to a cross. This was because they failed to live lives of faith and righteousness. Because the covenant was broken, the curse of the covenant was enacted. 
right? It was being administered. And the curse was falling upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus became a curse for us when he hung on the cross. Paul makes this exact connection in Galatians 3. In verses 13 and 14, Paul writes that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Friends, do you see what Paul is saying here? Do you see the heart of the gospel? Jesus Christ has fulfilled both, both the blessing and the curse of God's covenant with Abram. Through his perfect life, he has secured for us the blessing of the covenant to become sons and daughters of God, to enjoy and have his righteousness, his life in us, to be heirs of his kingdom, right? We always think of the positive. We always think of the perfect life that Jesus lived and we think of his resurrection and we're like, thank you, Jesus, for offering all of that to me. But the other side of the gospel shows us Jesus didn't just secure blessings for us. He absorbed all of the curses for us through his substitutionary death. He satisfied the curse of the covenant. Friends, you and I who have broken all of the laws of God, we have trespassed and not upheld the covenant of God. We all deserve to be split in two. We all deserve death. We all deserve damnation and punishment. We deserve to be cursed and hung on a tree. But Jesus took that curse upon himself for us. He became a curse for us. That is the gospel message. And if we believe this, if we trust in the gospel, then the true blessing of God to be able to call upon his name as our father in heaven, to be able to know that we are his sons and daughters and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. That blessing is ours. See, church, I believe that, each, that in each of us, there's a fear. There's a fear that somehow because of our sin, that somehow because of the things that we have done, the things that we have desired, the things that we have coveted, the things that we've said, that we will disqualify ourselves from receiving the blessing of God. Haven't you thought that? Haven't you just in the wake of a terrible sin trespassing, you're like, oh, God's not gonna bless me anytime soon. All right, whatever favor, whatever grace God had for me, I just extinguished it, right? I just wiped it out from my life. We fear that because of our bad decisions, we fear that because of our lack of self-control, because we pursue and love the world, that God, though he loves us, we fear that he's gonna reject us that though we know he's good, because we know that we're not, that we can never have intimacy with him, right? Church, do you believe that God desperately desires intimacy with you right now? That when you pray, that when you worship, that when we sing, and as we put our faith in him, that God wants to commune with you. He wants to draw near to you, and he wants you to know it, just like how he wanted Abraham to have assurance. He wants you to have assurance that he loves you and that he's given his son for you. 
Hear the word of the Lord today, church. He wants to be your shield. He wants to be your God. And he is so committed to that end, to that mission, that for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The power of the covenant doesn't lie in our ability to keep it. It lies in the fact that because of Christ, we cannot break it. We cannot lose it if we put our trust in him. That God is greater and he is mightier. He's not only the covenant maker, he's our covenant keeper. Would you believe in him? Church, would you believe that though your sins are scarlet, they are not so mighty that Christ cannot wash you clean and white as snow. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that today, if any of us are struggling with faith, we are, if we are struggling to believe in you and believe in your promises, we ask that you would help us in our unbelief. You would help us to fix our eyes and fix our, our hearts upon Jesus Christ, your son. Help us to turn away from our weakness, turn away from trying to save ourselves and to earn your favor and your blessing. Help us to realize that Jesus Christ is our only comfort, that Jesus Christ is our only hope, and Jesus Christ is our great reward. Holy Spirit, would you work right now upon all of our hearts? Would you magnify Jesus in our hearts that he would become greater? That he would become greater. We thank you in Jesus' name I pray, amen.